It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Israel sends more troops into Gaza. Welcome to the fastest show in politics as Israeli forces also conduct a raid in the West Bank and another airstrike in Syria as the war with Hamas enters a new phase. We're joined by Brett Bruin, former U.S. diplomat, now president of the Global Situation Room, for the latest on this. Speaker Mike Johnson says he will bring Israeli funding as a standalone bill to the House floor this week. And the latest polling from Iowa shows Nikki Haley on the ascent in a field that no longer includes Mike Pence. Analysis today from our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis, joined by... Alvin Jordan, vice president at Rock Solutions, Democratic strategist. We've got a lot to cover on this Monday. Let's get to it. Welcome to Monday, the Monday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where, again, we're painting out of several buckets today, and we'll bring you the latest on Israel, on the new Republican speaker and the agenda ahead for the House. No one in town right now. Lawmakers don't come back until Wednesday, as a matter of fact. And, of course, the campaign trail with new numbers today. Uh, following Mike Pence dropping out of the race over the weekend. So let's get to it. We begin in Israel as we prepare to bring in Brett Bruin. More Israeli forces have entered Gaza. This headline crossing the terminal, 10.55 a.m. local time. More forces rolling into Gaza with the invasion advancing gradually and according to plan, according to spokesman Daniel Hagari, who says now 239 people are thought to be held by Hamas. John Kirby speaking for the National Defense Apparatus at the White House earlier today on ABC's Good Morning America. Uh, The situation in Gaza is very perilous, which is why uh, the president spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday to make sure we can continue to accelerate that flow and increase that flow of humanitarian goods. The latest, though, on the terminal, Army says captive soldier freed in ground fight. This is brand new. Israel says a female soldier held captive in Gaza, was freed as the army extends ground operations in the territory. But, of course, we saw a lot happen over the weekend. We saw Israel conduct a raid in the West Bank. We saw another airstrike in Syria. We also saw skirmishes to the north, where there are great fears that a second front could be opening. 
And that's where we begin our conversation with Brett Bruin, the president of the Global Situation Room, former U.S. diplomat, back with us here on Bloomberg. Brett, it's great to see you. Uh, this is the new phase, as announced by Israel, and there's a lot of pressure, of course, uh, coming upon Israel to spare the lives of Palestinian civilians. How is this going so far? How effective has this operation been? Well, look, obviously, news uh, of the release of this uh, Israeli soldier is encouraging and obviously will bolster Prime Minister Netanyahu and his efforts to expeditiously uh, undertake an operation. And it's one, Joe, I think it's important for listeners to take account of the fact that after 9-11, after the rise of ISIS in Iraq, uh, there was no talk of a ceasefire. There was no notion that a terrorist organization was going to be able to abide by those terms, or uh, quite frankly, that we would be any better off, any safer um, in pursuing one. So Israel sees uh, the situation through that lens, and it's an understandable one after having suffered uh, the uh, most significant uh, terrorist attack on its soil um, since uh, the founding of the Jewish state. So um, it obviously is uh, a very difficult uh, endeavor and one that because of how Hamas has uh, ensconced itself uh, in and amongst civilians, um, obviously, uh, you know, these operations will have as uh, a result a number, a high number of civilian casualties. Hamas says uh, 8,306 Palestinians uh, have been killed since the 7th of October. Authorities in Gaza say more than 3,000 of them children. Uh, Brett, this is a very difficult narrative here for an operation that's still widening. To what extent is Israel, in fact, trying to spare civilians' lives? We know we're talking about dense urban warfare and a pretty tall order for Israeli troops who are being sent into harm's way as well. And obviously, Joe, uh, those numbers are, are truly um, tragic and ones that speak to just how difficult uh, these operations have been, will be going forward. And mm -hmm. and yet, obviously, um, it is part of, uh, unfortunately, the kind of um, military operation that Hamas initiated. Hamas you know, chose to uh, reinitiate uh, its attacks on Israel, and that led uh, to the death of 1,400 civilians, capture, as you mentioned earlier, uh, of 200 uh, and 50-odd um, civilians as well as soldiers. All of that um, creates what is, uh, without question, an extraordinarily difficult and dangerous situation. And it's why I think it's important that not only the U.S., but particularly regional partners are pressured to do more. Um, you, you have to ask questions, for instance, why has Egypt made it so difficult to get humanitarian aid in, let alone allowing Gazans out? You have to wonder why there have not been more efforts by the likes of uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, as well as other Gulf uh, states and close U.S. partners to try and pressure on both sides uh, that there are fewer rocket attacks, that there is a commitment to um, swearing off uh, the kinds of uh, brutal tactics that were used in these attacks by Hamas. So I think there is obviously, as we often discuss, 
Um, diplomacy has to be central to these efforts. Obviously, the military operations uh, are underway and will continue, but ultimately the solution is one that runs through diplomatic efforts. Is it really a, a realistic conversation, though, Brett, to, to be talking about sparing civilian life when we're, we're, we're seeing the use of bunker-busting bombs to try to get to these tunnels underneath Gaza? There are buildings on top of those tunnels, uh, and, and when you start getting into to civilians as human shields, the stated goal is to eliminate Hamas. Can you eliminate Hamas without killing scores more civilians? Well, I think first, uh, the initial phase of the Israeli operation uh, did uh, unfortunately involve quite a number of air assaults. It's the same uh, tactics that the U.S., uh, that our allies use, whether it was in Israel, Afghanistan, uh, or in, in other places where ahead of uh, sending in your troops, you're going to want uh, to take out some of those command and control points, uh, some of those rocket um, batteries and other high-value military targets. And yes, the, the images coming out of Gaza are absolutely horrific, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. And we should, as I think we have heard over the last uh, several days and, and the last couple of weeks, efforts by the Biden administration, by other world leaders to impress upon uh, Israel uh, the uh, importance of doing everything possible to limit civilian casualties. And I think we've seen um, some results to that, uh, whether it was delaying in that initial invasion or in just the last couple of days, restoration of telephone, internet service into uh, Gaza as well. You, I'm sure, saw images from this airport in Russia over the weekend, Brett. Uh, Makakala, if I'm saying it right, capital of Dagestan, where a mob went on a rampage after a Red Wings plane from Tel Aviv arrived. Uh, there are images and video of crowd running through the airport, chanting Allah Akbar, looking for Jews, trying to get onto the engine. Somebody got onto the wing of the airplane. They had to shut the entire airport down. And we have uh, further news on this today, Brett, that Vladimir Putin is meeting with top government officials to address these anti-Semitic protests in what we should note as a predominantly Muslim region of the country. John Kirby spoke about this earlier today on ABC. Here's what he said. It's certainly worrisome uh, footage to see that all that uh, hatred and, uh, and potential violence uh, against uh, Jewish passengers on an airplane. I mean, it's absolutely unacceptable. And I mean, these are two entities, Russia and Hamas, that want to uh, wipe neighboring countries off the map. So that's it's very concerning. Now, I, I don't know that there was any, you know, high level endorsement of uh, of that activity, but it, it's definitely, definitely worrisome. He's referring to uh, a meeting with Hamas that Vladimir Putin had. Uh, and I just wonder what you can tell us about all of this, Brett. Obviously, this was chilling to see and something that we wouldn't have thought necessarily would have involved Vladimir Putin to the extent that it does here. Uh, but how concerned are you about what happened over the weekend in Russia? Absolutely was chilling and brought back uh, echoes of the stories I used to hear from my grandparents who left um, Russia, Eastern uh, Ukraine and Moldova at the time because of pogroms, those attacks uh, that took place uh, against Jews in uh, various villages across uh, Russia and um, neighboring countries. So 
this ought to set off alarm bells in capitals around the world. It ought to, Joe, I think, especially here in the U.S., where some of the rhetoric used by politicians on both sides of the aisle, whether it's in describing Israel's actions, whether it's in describing uh, what Israel or the United States should do, need to be much, much more careful. Uh, the, the language that I've seen in just the last couple of weeks in public statements and interviews, as well as social tweets, is adding more fuel to this fire, is exacerbating and, quite frankly, is endangering Americans with some of the suggestions like Vivek Raswami, uh, Ramaswamy over the weekend, uh, who suggested um, what ought to be done, and I'm not going to repeat it, uh, to uh, Hamas uh, soldiers. These kinds of um, very vicious, very um, just extreme descriptions of um, of the situation, quite frankly, inaccurate descriptions or ill-considered descriptions are, are exacerbating the conditions and are, are leading to the kind of um, of mass hysteria that played out yesterday at that Russian airport. Yeah, uh, mass hysteria is another good way of putting it. And this comes against uh, the backdrop of calls for Benjamin Netanyahu's resignation, Brett, while you're still with us. I wonder if you could speak to this uh, as he is now apologizing for blaming security chiefs uh, in a tweet that was then deleted. It's kind of a long story here, but he doesn't seem to be keeping uh, the people of Israel with him. As I look at uh, the Jerusalem Post, four of five Jewish Israelis believe the government and Prime Minister Netanyahu are to blame for the mass infiltration of Hamas terrorists into Israel. How much trouble is he in? Oh, without question, uh, there will be a high political price to pay for uh, what um, obviously details still to be forthcoming, but uh, mm -hmm. completely unacceptable um, that Hamas fighters could get into Israel. And ultimately, uh, the buck has to stop with Netanyahu at some point uh, through the, these investigations and ultimately a determination of accountability. I think both he, as well as perhaps some of his cabinet members will be ushered out. And, and hopefully Israel is able to put forward a government that is going to both address the current uh, crisis, but let's not forget, Joe, there are a lot of issues when it comes to settler activity, when it comes to the judicial reform that Netanyahu was pursuing beforehand, which have obviously created a very fragile foundation for democracy and for peace and stability in Israel. Brett, it's good to see you. Thanks for starting your week with us. Brett Bruin, of course, at the Global Situation Room here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as we assemble our panel today. Rick Davis is with us, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist, joined by Democratic analyst Alvin Jordan, vice president at Rock Solutions. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to dive into this, uh, though, Rick, I wonder your thoughts on what you saw over the weekend with the minute or so time that we have. Is this next phase just the tip of the iceberg or is this the, the ground invasion you were waiting for? Well, I, I think this is a ground invasion we were anticipating, but I, I'm, I'm not sure it represents just the next phase. I mean, these, this is such a multi-phase attack plan uh, that the Israelis have. Uh, and And I would say that um, we have to give them time to really formulate that plan and let it see what happens when it hits the ground, what kind of opposition they'll get, whether or not they're successful with negotiating through the Qataris 
to get hostages back. I mean, this is a multi-stage effort. And I and I think that the ground forces being there, uh, rolling up uh, terrorist elements within the Hamas organization uh, is just one aspect of that. We'll have the deep dive next with our panel, not only what's happening on the ground in Israel, but here in Washington, where the request for funding will be taken up by the House this week. The new speaker talking about it over the weekend. That'll be Israel funding alone, however. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The new Speaker of the House says he stands ready to pass aid for Israel as soon as this week. In fact, it looks like there will be a vote uh, come Thursday. That's the reporting at Bloomberg. Mike Johnson speaking with Fox over the weekend, remembering that the supplemental request that came from the White House included funding for Israel, for Ukraine, $60 billion worth, also for Taiwan, and then the rest for border security. That's the way the Senate is tackling this. Apparently not this Republican-led House. Here's the new speaker. Well, listen, we're going to move a standalone Israel funding bill this week in the House. I know uh, our colleagues, our Republican uh, colleagues in the Senate uh, have a similar measure. We believe that that is a pressing and urgent need. There, there are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention. 
All right, let's get into this with our panel as the ground assaults in Israel enters a new phase, something we were just discussing with Rep. Ruin. Rick Davis joins, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist today with Democratic analyst Alvin Jordan at Rock Solutions. Alvin, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining the conversation. Uh, What's going to happen here if the House decides to tackle Israel funding alone? Knowing that the Senate and the White House see this differently, isn't this kind of inevitable how this is going to go? It'll slow things down until the combined bill actually becomes law at some point? Or are these going to go one at a time? Each cause gets gets its own piece of legislation. I think the hope truly is to have these go one at a time. And I think that uh, the you know new speaker correctly points out that by prioritizing the immediate need uh, in this particular instance, that uh, the turmoil in Israel I think demands is a you know great place and a and a clear point of view I think as far as um, you know looking at the situation as it stands and uh, I, I think we would all hope that um, as opposed to kind of backlogging and, and jamming this up a bit more that this would free it up. And, and just kind of set the basis for an understanding that we kind of have to tackle, you know, kind of one bite at the elephant at, at, a, at a time. Rick, it's not lost on us that Mitch McConnell is appearing today in Louisville with Oksana Markarova, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., who is no stranger uh, to American media. This new speaker is going to have a real issue with the Republican leader in the Senate, isn't he? Yeah, he's got an issue, you know, with the approach that um, Speaker Johnson's taking by taking these one by one. But he's also got a problem with his own Senate Republican caucus. Um, Just recently, uh, J.D. Vance, Mike Lee, uh, Ted Cruz from Texas, they all indicated a willingness to move forward right away with an Israeli bill uh, to fund that supplemental request and, and to do it on an independent basis. So, in addition to problems he's got in the House of Representatives moving forward on a standalone basis with Israel funding, uh, he's got a, a, a sort of back effort in the Senate that he has to stall in order to just make sure his own caucus is on his side. Well, you do wonder how this is going to come together and if Ukrainian funding uh, reaches the $60 billion or so that the president is looking for. Much of that's going to be spent domestically, Alvin. And I wonder if you see the messaging coming out of the White House uh, as being effective here. When you hear not another dollar for Ukraine uh, from some on Capitol Hill, they're not thinking about our own munitions here, our own stockpiles and our own work with American defense contractors. Do you agree? I think the important part to remember here is, you know, just taking a step back, our, you know, kind of new speaker has already shown the ability to uh, kind of unite what seemingly seems to be a kind of divided uh, group. And so I think you have to kind of look at the, the statements from the administration and from the president kind of with that same lens as of it is very clear where the administration and where the president uh, president wants this to go uh, from a funding standpoint. But we really, I think, have to um, do the work in in prioritizing what exactly that means, considering um, just the amount of not just funding that we've already sent out out of the door, but just considering the turmoil that the, that the world is in and, and the amount of assistance that will be needed. Um, I think anything hasty that kind of overlooks that true point 
um, is just, you know, not in the in the best interest holistically, uh, you know, at this given time. Well, when you take a look at some of the other items facing the new speaker uh, as soon as this week, it it, it, it it looks like an interesting party here, Rick. It also includes not just uh, an effort to fund the government with a shutdown looming on November 17th, and we can talk about that, of course, but three privileged resolutions, one to expel George Santos, two others to censure members, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Representative Tlaib, who I realize is not a Republican in this case, but the Speaker still has to herd cats in this uh, House of Representatives should all of these come to the floor and what happens when they do? Yeah, no, look, I mean, these are mostly junk resolutions. They're not going to pass. Uh, they, they, they'll get scheduled in due course by the rules committee and they'll come up in regular business. So I, I don't think those things are going to sort of slow him down. And I would be shocked if he took any of his time and prestige as the brand new Speaker of the House to even address them much publicly, right? I mean, they these are... These are sort of leftovers, you know, from a period of time that he's trying to avoid, which is sort of the the balkanization of both parties fighting with each other internally, and then taking those fights out, you know, onto the floor of the se- yeah. on the floor of the house. So uh, he's got his work cut out for him to be able to accomplish this. But but every indication I've got from his uh, his allies on Capitol Hill is that he's going to resist as much as he can these kinds of public stunts and try to get some of the business done, knowing that, you know, as you say, Joe, we've got to fund the government, we've got to fund Ukraine, we've got to fund Israel, we've got to fund the border problems. There's a real need to uh, act in the House to catch up to where the Senate is on these appropriations bills. I mean, he's got Mm -hmm. other things to worry about that actually have real upside for the country. You know, uh, there's a, a congressman from Ohio named Max Miller, Uh, And he wants to change the threshold on the motion to vacate. This is, of course, how Kevin McCarthy got fired. And it's still technically hanging over the speaker here to force 112 members in this case of the majority or minority to sign on to the resolution to fire a speaker of the House. Does that need to happen, Alvin? Will it happen? I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, I, I think just as we've seen just up until this point, just how much. Uh, this really just muddies the waters and and just gives a larger barrier, you know, to injury as far as allowing the speaker to to do their job. Um, I think you know more than anything right now, you know, kind of the the collaboration and the work across the aisle um, just really matters more than anything. And I think given um, any kind of you know credence or or just look back to 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 these types of things, I think just slows the process. Um, so you would like for um, you know for us to find ourselves in a place where this isn't something that continues to kind of become that that dark cloud over the the, the speakership, if you will. I think he wants so, to make it more difficult though, and and actually raise the threshold. Right. Is that something you'd support to to give the speaker a slightly easier ride here? Yeah, I, I mean, in that way, sure. Um, I, I just think that up until this point, we we really need to. I mean, we're talking about you know funding and, and sending money out of the door, and just you know finding ourselves in a place where we're working collaboratively, collaboratively. And so, I just think that in this particular instance, sure, you know, making it a harder threshold is fine, but we really need to yeah. kind of you know move past this this topic of discussion, which seems to keep creeping uh, <laughs> back up in the discussion. <laughs> Well, what do you do then, uh, Rick? Do you raise the threshold or get rid of it altogether? 
Well, you can't get rid of it altogether, but there are mechanisms to make it more difficult, if not downright unfeasible. And 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 again, they they probably ought to do that. They should have done it the day Johnson got elected. Um, mm. Every day that goes by, uh, uh, guys like Matt Gates get a little bit more oxygen. I mean, he's been chastised, right? I mean, here's one guy who was more desperate to get a, 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 a speaker elected than anybody else because he was to blame for three and a half weeks of complete, you know, misfunction, malfunction, lack of function of the, the House of Representatives. I mean, that that's a heck of a burden to carry around with you for the balance of your term. So uh, I suspect that there's nobody who's really keen to exercise a motion to vacate right now. Uh, and and so they ought to just clean that up. But but again, you know, I, I don't think there's any there there right now. I think between now and the end of the year, um, uh, you know, they've got so much business to do that there is a sense, as Alvin said, of a new esprit de corps to get things done, uh, a little bit of bipartisanship, hopefully. Uh, and I think it'll be mostly tested by this Ukraine resolution. Will the speaker put a Ukraine resolution on the floor without a majority of the Republicans supporting it? Because right. it'll pass overwhelmingly with almost the entire Democratic caucus backing it. Huh. But but will he allow a bipartisan solution? We will find out. Rick Davis, Alvin Jordan, great panel. They stay with us as we turn to the campaign trail next. New numbers from Iowa and Selzer's latest just out. And, of course, it's all about number two. We'll have a lot more on that ahead. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just wrapped up a news conference in Israel, generating a couple of headlines on the terminal. For starters, and not a surprise, he says he will not agree to any ceasefire with Hamas. And getting to one of the issues we were speaking to earlier, calls for his resignation after over the weekend apologizing for blaming Israeli military and intelligence officials for the Hamas terror attack and missing the cues that might have led to it. Dismissing calls for his resignation as prime minister officially, he says he is working for Hamas to resign. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Uh, the war uh, with Hamas was a huge issue over the weekend in Las Vegas as the Republican candidates spoke to the RJC, the Republican Jewish Coalition, Nikki Haley, among others, speaking to the crowd. Donald Trump was there. He said he would reinstate the Muslim ban if reelected. Nikki Haley went after the former president for his remarks recently about Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas. While the polls are notable, principles matter a lot more. As president, I will not compliment Hezbollah, nor will I criticize Israel's prime minister in the middle of a tragedy and war. Not exactly a standing ovation, but she wasn't booed for it either. As we reassemble our panel, Rick Davis and Alvin Jordan, Rick, of course, Republican strategist, Alvin, Democratic analyst from Rock Solutions. Uh, this is a must-stop, Rick, obviously, when you're speaking to the RJC. Uh, they each took their own path here. And, of course, Mike Pence uh, made some news, dropping out of the race. And that really kind of became the headline for the campaign over the weekend. Uh, I don't know if you were expecting the former vice president to be the next one to drop here, but... 
How important is that for this whole conversation that we're having? Other than uh, former President Trump and Nikki Haley, he was the only one with direct foreign policy experience on that stage. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's important to note that um, uh, you're right. I mean, he had incredible foreign policy chops. Uh, you know, the four years he spent with uh, President Trump, he was all over the world developing these relationships. And he just he wasn't able to gain traction in Iowa, a very key state, especially for a Midwesterner like himself. Uh, and I mm -hmm. thought it was actually very uh, impressive that he took the RJC conference to uh, announce that he was suspending his campaign because that would have been a group that I think, you know, probably would have been more supportive of uh, Vice President Pence than most of the Republican crowds you have, especially during a crisis like this, and especially due to the fact that he was such a strong supporter of Israel throughout his political career, but especially as vice president. So all that lined up perfectly for him. I think that it does put more focus onto Nikki Haley, uh, one of the very few other Republicans besides the president himself, uh, who have uh, actionable foreign policy experience. And she's been willing to make it a case uh, for that on the campaign trail, even before the war broke out in Israel. So she's she got to that trough first. Uh, obviously, the mm -hmm. president has made, President Trump has made many missteps along the way, especially related to this uh, current uh, fight in uh, for Gaza and against Hamas. And so, yeah, uh, advantage Nikki Haley. Uh, consolidation is important to her. Uh, getting the spotlight on her commander-in-chief credentials is important to her. And, uh, and, and showing a true contrast with the president, as she did in her speech at the RJC, uh, yeah. was, uh, I think, a really good weekend for her. Well, she certainly uh, has a good showing in this Ann Selzer poll. This is NBC News. Des Moines Register uh, shows Donald Trump dominating the field. That's not news. He's he's leading everyone by nearly 30 percent. But Nikki Haley rising into second place to Tyron DeSantis at 16 percent, tied at second, reminding you that in August, Nikki Haley was at 6 percent in this poll. Ron DeSantis was at 19 percent. And so, Alvin, when this really starts to, to, to be looking like a, a second place coalescing around Nikki Haley, is that not Joe Biden's great worry right now? He wants to run against Donald Trump. Does a Republican nominee named former ambassador, former governor Nikki Haley keep him up at night? I think it absolutely has to keep him up at night. I think uh, any you know formidable a uh, politician with, as you mentioned, kind of the, the chops to match and the, the the resume to match is exactly, you know, what the, the Democrats and Joe Biden just don't want to see. Um, I know we've kind of, you know, joked in, 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 in our back and forth that this was, you know, uh, or has been at least a, a race to, to second place. But I think as, you know, Nikki Haley's base grows, and she continues to to outpace um, kind of what is that that second tier group. I, I think you definitely have to get a little bit bit nervous if you're the, the the Biden team for sure. What do you think of the results of this poll, Rick? The trajectory for Ron DeSantis and the trajectory for Nikki Haley are hard to deny. Yeah, it, uh, it 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 is hard to deny. I mean, DeSantis has been, you know, sort of just going nowhere. Uh, and we've been talking about the phenomena that he has because he has to make a mark in Iowa. He doesn't have another state to really campaign in. 
all his hundred million dollar super PAC is getting spent in Iowa. And the fact that he's actually ticking down in this, this survey is really bad news for him in reverse. Uh, Nikki Haley, who's actually been making moves in New Hampshire and actually we've seen in public polls increasing her capacity and even uh, outstripping DeSantis in New Hampshire, now can add Iowa as a potential battleground because she almost doubled the amount of support that she had since the last uh, Des Moines Register poll. Uh, and, and, and frankly, with very good underlying data, a little bit I've been able to dig in on this poll. I mean, she doubled yeah. her numbers with independents while everybody else either went down or stayed the same. So, um, you know, independents make up almost a quarter of all the caucus goers. And and it's a it's a likely group that would really attach themselves to her. And all the while, nobody else in the field moving. No, Chris Christie, no yes, right. Vivek Ramaswamy. None of these other people have made any progress. Now, of course, Mike Pence is out. So we'll see where. Uh, his a couple of percentage points go in Iowa with Rick Davis and Alvin Jordan. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Speaker Mike Johnson has got a long to-do list. 
But what can he get done? Welcome to Hour 2 of Sound On, as the new Speaker of the House promises a standalone bill to fund Israel on the House floor this week, even as the Senate moves in another direction and a government shutdown looms just, what, three weeks away? We're joined by Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg Government Appropriations and Congress expert, and we'll have our weekly conversation with Mick Mulvaney, the co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, former acting chief of staff in the Trump White House. Three up and three down. You might have heard it. GM cuts a tentative deal with the UAW. That takes care of all three of the big three automakers. We'll be joined by Arthur Wheaton, Director of Labor Studies at Cornell, and his expertise on the way forward here. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound on Monday edition. It doesn't feel like a Monday at all, Kaylee. Oh, it very much does. Kaylee so. Lyons is with us, of course. <laughs> the thing is, Kaylee has an excuse. Kaylee ran a marathon over Half. the weekend. Half. I slept through the weekend, and I feel like I need another weekend now. Half marathon. Congratulations. Half. You do this you. like every weekend now. Oh, you no. have a Saturday. Kaylee has a marathon. <laughs> it's completely the way things work around here. Um, you know, you're just killing time for the appropriations to begin. Exactly. I understand how this works. Well, we did get a speaker last week, and that was a big deal around here. Now, the speaker's got a menu here of things that a lot of people are Mm -hmm. asking for, and it's unclear exactly how all of this is going to work and whether the government will stay open through November 17th, though I know Jack is going to tell us that it will happen, right? Well, he very well may. Should we ask Jack? Well, we certainly can. Rotates in chair. Uh, There he is now. Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government. from uh, next door on K Street, it's good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming in. Um, not a big shocker to hear Mike Johnson say over the weekend he wants a standalone vote on Israel funding. He said last week what bifurcate was the word he used. Mm-hmm. Now speaking with Fox News, he does it again just for good measure. Here's Mike Johnson when asked about the big request for money for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the border. Well, listen, we're going to move a standalone Israel funding bill this week in the House. I know uh, our colleagues, our Republican uh, colleagues in the Senate uh, have a similar measure. We believe that that is a pressing and urgent need. There, there are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention. So how is this going to work when the Senate apparently wants to do it the way the president is asking? Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. is is appearing in Louisville today with the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. to make the point. Do we already have a standoff? This is a fight. I'm not sure it is the fight. Um, On one hand, yes, the president said, give me a bunch of things all in one. And there are lawmakers who think it makes sense to put Israel, Ukraine, U.S.-Mexico border, Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific funding all together in one big thing. Mm -hmm. House Republican leadership clearly does not agree. But, you know, I I remember just a a week ago or so a group of House Republicans who are pretty pro-Ukraine, they were led by Dan Crenshaw, sort of defense hawks said, The real question is, can we get a deal on Ukraine with the border stuff? That's the political trade-off so that the neoliberal, neoconservative people get what they want in a Ukraine package, the more hardline conservatives get what they want in a border measure. And I do not think that separating Israel necessarily makes everything collapse. They can do multiple bills, but there's still this opportunity to maybe bring the two wings together if Ukraine and borders still go together. Okay, so you're talking about multiple bills here in terms of supplemental funding, but there's also a number of bills to contend with in terms of appropriations. I know they're going to try to pass a couple more this week, right? What exactly is the sequencing here? 
Um, I, we don't know yet how much the House is actually going to sincerely try to do. Okay. Uh, there was a detailed plan by Mike Johnson put forth as he was running for speaker uh, that said, here's how we're going to pass all our bills by November 17th. The House is not actually coming back this week until Wednesday, right. and they are going to vote, he said, on this Israel measure, which then leaves out Ukraine and the border uh, by Thursday. They are going to have to vote this week. They're, they have to legally vote within two legislative days on the expulsion of George Santos mm-hmm. because of a measure that was filed that requires a vote on that. So it, there's a plan to vote on three more regular appropriations bills in the House. There are a lot of distractions, though, and that's also the case in the Senate. They're, they've got about 10 amendments left to go on the Senate on this three-bill package, so it's, it's pretty slow going. Before we bring in uh, Mick Mulvaney, I want to ask you about the motion to vacate. There's a new effort, I guess, to increase the threshold on the motion. Does that have support in the House after this whole saga we just lived through? That wasn't answered clearly during the speaker fight. And given that Mike Johnson did not make his candidacy contingent on people agreeing to change that, uh, that seems more like a a conversation that has to happen rather than something that's going to be forced in action sometime soon. It was interesting in that interview he did with Sean Hannity last week, though. There was a moment in there, and it was Hannity was getting ready to ask another question, but Mike Johnson was kind of like, I think we're going to change it. I think we're going to change it. And then that's kind of all we got. I really hope we're going to change it. We'll see. Jack, great to see you. Thanks, as always. Jack Fitzpatrick, our colleague at Bloomberg Government, right next door, Congress reporter who specializes in appropriations, not unlike Mick Mulvaney, who's with us now, each Monday at this time. Uh, The former OMB director, I'm just putting that first because I never do. The uh, (laughs) co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, former acting chief of staff. There's something else in here I could put uh, in front of it. Uh, It's good to see you, Mick, as always. Before we get into the real work, does this motion to vacate actually change. Uh, There's an effort right now, I believe it's Max uh, Miller of Ohio, who says this should uh, this should require 112 members. Do you agree? Well, that was the rule under uh, Nancy Pelosi. I think she changed it to the majority of the majority. Other than that brief, I think it was two or four year period, every speaker in history had to deal with the motion made by one person. And there's a there's a lot of weight of history there. Then the question is not the number of people, it's the people you've got. Um, hmm. So uh, there's I'd be curious if Jack's still listening. I, I, I don't remember. I've been out of the House now about seven years. I don't remember how to change the rules in the middle of a Congress. I think the burden hmm. is higher. The vote burden is higher during a Congress to change the rules than it is at the outset of every Congress, typically at the beginning of each Congress, right after they pick a speaker, what happens is they adopt the rules package for that Congress, that two-year Congress, and they usually don't change that during the two years, but they can. I just think there's a higher burden, and if there is, it's highly unlikely they're going to change this. Look, everybody I've talked to said that while, you know, that they're watching Mike very closely. I'm sure the appropriators are watching Mike very closely. The folks in the center of the Republican Party are watching him extraordinarily closely um, and will hold him into you know, his feet to the fire on making sure things work. In the folks I talked to, Joe Gailey, I don't get the impression there's a lot of a lot of appetite right now for either changing the rules on the speaker or more importantly, having another speaker vote. I think I think Mike Johnson is going to be the speaker for the rest of this Congress. And then this discussion will go over into what happens after the next election. 
Okay, Mick, so if we operate under that assumption that it will be Speaker Johnson at least until 2025, how much power and influence does Speaker Johnson really have, considering a lot of people didn't even really know who he was before he ultimately got the gavel? Is this really going to be Speaker Johnson in the front and Steve Scalise is the man behind the curtain? How do you think the power dynamics are going to work here? Well, you know, no. I mean, they're both in Louisiana. I assume they know each other. Again, I don't know Mike Johnson very well. He got there just as I was leaving. I know Steve Scalise very well. Um, my guess is, to answer your question, that Mike Johnson will have roughly the same amount of authority that Kevin McCarthy had. It's an institutional sort of authority. What does the speaker get to do? He gets to pick which bills come to the floor. Um, he gets to, to a sort of, a, a, he's heavily involved in the committee chairmanships, but those have already been set. So the speaker has some authority, but not a tremendous amount of authority, especially when the margins are this tight. Keep in mind, Nancy Pelosi did not have a lot of authority um, when she was speaker. And that sounds strange to say it. So let me take two seconds to explain why that is. She only had a margin of four or five votes. And while she had more control over her conference than Kevin McCarthy did or, or, or Mike Johnson will, she still had to essentially bring stuff to the floor that everybody could vote for. She couldn't pass anything that was controversial within her party. She had to sort of go wherever her majority pointed her. And that's the same sort of environment that Kevin was in. It will be the same environment that Mike Johnson is in. Boy, a lot there. And I wonder your thoughts on Ukraine funding specifically with Mitch McConnell. I keep referring to this, Mick, but I think it's fascinating. He's spending time appearing with uh, Oksana Markarova today in Kentucky, of course, Ukraine's ambassador yeah. to the U.S., uh, who is a known entity uh, in our media here and, and is, has been for the better part of two years. This is not something that he's going to drop very easily. Is the speaker, do you think, already in touch with the Senate Republican leader on this? Oh, sure. A hundred percent. I think Jack actually in your previous segment hit the nail on the head is that, look, a lot of Republican members, a lot of congressmen and women from both parties don't like these monster deals, right? Where you throw mm-hmm. a bunch of crap in a bill. And if I want to get the one thing I'd like, I have to vote for nine things that I don't like. They don't like that. It perverts the process. That's a bipartisan sort of objection. So when you hear the speaker say, I want to split off um, funding for Israel, my guess is there's going to be a, a good level of support for that. That does not necessarily kill Ukraine funding, because as Jack pointed out, it still allows uh, the folks in the Senate to talk about marrying Ukraine funding with the border. So you could have instead of one monster bill, you might have two. You'd have one for Israel, which is a relatively small bill. Keep in mind the funding for Israel is about fourteen billion dollars, or roughly you know twelve percent of the uh, of the overall bill. Um, have one mm-hmm. bill for Israel and then another bill for Ukraine married with a border. That's the type of thing that sounds like it might have some life to it. Um, and allow everybody to have their own vote, vote yes on one, no on the other. Uh, but the House and the Senate still get to work their will without forcing down a monster omnibus bill uh, down a lot of people's throats. So uh, no, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that the, that sounds like it is the way that things should play out. Okay, so it's going to come down to the math and whether or not any of those individual things can get the adequate number of votes. And while we're thinking about numbers and counting votes, Mick, knowing all that work needs to be done, that there's so many bills that they're going to need to pass, is there any real chance that the Republicans kick George Santos out of the House and narrow their margin even further? Ooh, really good question. You know, I think um, Mike Johnson had said early on that that wasn't going to be a priority. They had other stuff to do. Um the, I, I no longer the think the expulsion it's a resolution of- could come to the floor this week, and I just wonder how many people are going to vote. Yeah, 
Um, the question is, are they going to, Kaylee, and I'm asking you a question I don't know the answer to. Is that a privileged motion? Do they have to vote on it? Yes. Two legislative okay, days so is our understanding. Okay, so it's sort of like uh, the same as the motion to vacate. It has to sit for 48 for two days to ripen, but then it, it can be brought at any time. Keep in mind, there's two different things there. By the way, as soon as I say that out loud, um, you know, people got the the motion to vacate wrong. They they said that after it was introduced, it would have to come up in 48 hours or two days. That's not true. It's after it was introduced, it could come up at any time after two days, as long as someone then brought the motion to the floor. If mm -hmm. the motion to, to expel Santos falls into a sort of a similar category, you could file the motion and then you can bring the motion, force a vote anytime after two days. But it doesn't mean the vote automatically takes place after two days. So if you're a Republican from <laughs> from, huh. from 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 New York and you want to sort of, um, you know, beat your chest and say you want to get rid of George Santos, you could file the motion, but then not bring it up for a vote. I don't know. Uh, the George Santos thing is really, really weird. I don't know the guy. Thank goodness. Um, my guess is he's probably gone if it does come to a vote. And now that the speaker thing is sort of put to bed, maybe for the rest of this Congress, the Republicans be more likely to get rid of him because they don't care about that extra one vote in terms of a motion to vacate. Well, I was compelled by his answer when asked about this on Fox uh, last week. The speaker you did reach for you due process. You weren't, you weren't compelled by anything he said. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I don't know. If, yes, right. Not due process was invoked, but not until after he talked about the thin margin in the House. Mick, here's Speaker Johnson. Here's the reality, Sean. We have a four seat majority in the House. Um, it, it is possible that uh, that number may be reduced even more in the, in the coming weeks and months. And so we'll have what may be the most razor thin majority in the history of the Congress. Um, we have no margin for error. And so uh, George Santos is due due process, right? He is, uh, I, my understanding is, I think he's appearing in a federal court uh, tomorrow, and uh, we have to allow due process to play itself out. Uh, that's what our system of justice is for. He's not convicted, he's, he's charged. Not convicted. He's charged, and so if we're gonna expel people from Congress just because they're charged with a crime, then, um, you know, or accused, that, that's, a, that's a problem. So Mick, we're just saying it out loud, right? <laughs> this, this is not about due All process, right. it's about keeping every vote you can. Joe, and I owe you an apology. I thought you meant you were compelled by something that George Santos had said. I was taking you to task on that. And you really <laughs> I'm compelled by everything George Santos says. That's not a question. <laughs> um, look, at this point, I don't know if, a, if there's much of a difference between a five-vote margin and a four-vote margin. Um, it's going to be tight regardless. So, uh, you know, I think he's... The safe place for him to go is to due process. I, I think I respect that. And to say, look, the House will work its will. Um, it is typical that, you know, if you're if you're under indictment, you're, you're supposed to you're supposed to I know you're supposed to get off your committees. And I think George has already done that or they kick yeah. him off yeah. of his committee. I don't know what the precedent is on uh, on indictment on on on. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody who's been expelled for an indictment. If not, then yeah. George is probably safe for a while. I think he pled not guilty late last week, right after that interview was taking place. Yeah, it, pretty remarkable. He did. It was actually just hours after. Yeah. Uh, always wish we had more time with Mick Mulvaney. It's great to see you, Mick. Let's do it in a week. Just imagine what will happen between now and then. <laughs> Mick Mulvaney here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 
So our historic auto workers strike appears to be over. This is just tentative now, but GM is the last piece to fall in place following Ford and Stellantis. I'm Joe Matthew, along with Kaylee Lines. That news coming this morning. GM cutting a deal means the whole thing is done, right? This was all three of the big three. Yeah, I mean, this is still tentative. It'll have to be approved by the union. So we're talking thousands of members that will have tens of thousands of them that have to sign off on this. But it does seem like this brings the beginning of the end of a six-week-long strike. And what they got is very similar to what they got out of Ford and Stellantis. And when I say they, I mean the UAW. 25% increase in wages, cost of living allowances included in this. And it's Delantis's case. It was also an issue of making job co- security concessions as well. Does Sean Fain get like a parade? Does he get, uh, what, what do the Maybe members do for Sean Fain? Throw himself a parade? Gift him some more camo shirts. Right, it'll be all white <laughs> camo. He must be writing a ripper right now for his next Facebook mm-hmm. Live. I don't know. Maybe you know uh, when that happens. This is what he was sounding like last week when it was Ford, of course, we were talking about. We took our strike to a new phase and hit the companies with maximum effect. On Monday, we called on our UAW family at Sterling Heights Assembly to stand up. That is Stellantis' biggest and most profitable plant. On Tuesday, our UAW family at Arlington Assembly answered the call, and they went out on strike, shutting down GM's biggest and most profitable plant. Ford knew what was coming for them on Wednesday, if we didn't get a deal, that was checkmate. Checkmate. Maximum effect, mm-hmm. he says. The strike delivered. Uh, and so uh, Sean Fain may have just set a massive precedent for organized labor all over the country, which is uh, another part of maybe the next part of this story. Yeah, because we're thinking about a four-year contract here. So there's the potential that all this song and dance happens again in 2028. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the UAW has asked other unions to time their contracts around the same. May Mm -hmm. 2028, everybody could be going on strike. This is is something, and he could probably be the one to pull it off, right? Maybe it's a a movement, not a moment. We'll see. That was good. Oh, thank you. Want to talk to the professor, Professor Wheaton, Director of Labor Studies at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Loved our conversation in the throes of this. Arthur Wheaton has uh, helped to actually negotiate labor contracts before and is with us now that we have some news. Uh, It's good to see you, Professor. Thanks for joining us here once again on Bloomberg Sound On. Sean Fain got more than a lot of people thought he would get. How would you grade his level of success here? I think he should receive a grade of an A plus. I think he far exceeded what I thought possible for him to get. And it's important to remember that they got quite a bit for the workers that were hired before 2008, but they got massive increases for the new hires, temporaries, and what they refer to as in progression workers. In some case, up to 165% increases in their wages. Yeah, and it's not just about wages. As we know, there's other benefits at play here. We're still trying to figure out what exactly the details are in the case of GM as retirement benefits were a real sticking point, we understood, in the conversation. So they must have ironed that out in some way. But net-net looking at this... looking at what the UAW has been able to pull off here with with these automakers. Is this something that is Sean Fain and an auto workers union specific, or is this something that other labor forces are going to be able to replicate when they're dealing with companies going forward? 
I think it's also building upon the success that the Teamsters had with UPS, and it's building upon mm, the point. strong labor market we have to help in this case. But Sean Fain deserves a tremendous amount of our respect and support for what he was able to accomplish, not just for the UAW, but for all workers, because people will start paying higher wages to avoid unionize, union union drives at their places. So this this should help all folks in manufacturing, especially in the auto sector. Should we assume these are all ratified? You never you can never assume anything. They thought they had a deal at Mack Truck and that did not get ratified. I'm optimistic hmm. this one will get ratified, but I'm making no guarantees, but really big improvements, much higher than most analysts dreamed possible. When you talk about how this creates something that is much bigger than the UAW or a force that is greater than just the U United Auto Workers. I also just wonder, thinking about auto workers that aren't at these these big three, like those that are employed by, say, Tesla. Do you think we could see this force spread there? Oh, absolutely. Tesla has had a Elon Musk is like the saying he's paying as much as the UAW so that there's no incentive to join the UAW because they pay decent wages. But <laughs> these anymore. improvements for all of the different categories and classifications for the UAW means that's no longer the case. So they will have an incentive to pay higher or face additional organizing drives. And according to Sean Fain, his phone's ringing off the hook for members trying to join with the UAW oh. now that they've got big gains on the table. So if you if you get a big contract, it really helps in your organizing efforts. Well, you tend to believe him. What did he refer to uh, the, the, the big three becoming the big five or six? That would have to include Tesla, I'm mm -hmm. assuming, Kaylee. Uh, Professor, I want to ask you about the greater picture here. We still don't have an actor's union contract and as we look around the country, we can find any number of others uh, that appear coiled and, and, and set to spring, not the, the smallest of which is in Las Vegas. We've got the culinary union on the Las Vegas Strip on the verge of what appears to be a massive labor action that would come on the eve of an F1 race, the Super Bowl, the Consumer Electronics Show, the type of strike that a lot of people would see and would likely get a lot of media coverage we know how important that group is uh, for Democrats coming up in the Nevada caucuses. Uh, will also be held at the beginning of next year. It could be a collision when it comes to timing. Does this deal that we're seeing here in the recent action by the UAW prompt more labor actions like those? It can. It shows, it shows success of collective bargaining works and taking collective action can make a difference. And why would it happen with the same sorts of events you're talking about? Because you strike when you have the most leverage and you want to make sure you can get yeah. the biggest gains. If there was nothing happening and you were during the heights of the pandemic and no one was going to Vegas, it wouldn't have as much impact. Now that you have Vegas starting to attract major events, that's when you have the most leverage at the table. That's when you want to try to get your piece of that economic action. So it only makes sense. And I think it's going to, happen in other sectors as well. I hope they get the actor, the SAG-AFTRA ratified very quickly. And you're seeing President Biden already trying to make changes for artificial intelligence. And that's one of the issues actors are facing. So it's, hmm. it's not just one small piece of the puzzle where a lot of people that are just workers and trying to get a little bit bigger piece of the pie. 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up President Biden, because what you just said about the UAW deal being a testament to the power of collected bargaining, collective bargaining and unions, that's essentially what the president said in the statement he put out after the news of the Stellantis uh, UAW deal was announced. What grade would you give him in terms of his support of unions and his efforts here with the UAW, knowing that he did go visit the picket line in Detroit? Being the first sitting president to ever walk a picket line in support of the union, I'd have to give him an A. I think that's at least an A for effort and trying to be there. I think you, if you try to give all of Congress a grade, that's that's a little harder to do. So you can only do so much as president. And I think he's got a good positive attitude towards union, along with about 70% of America has a positive attitude about unions. Thought it was an E for effort, Professor. I don't know how that goes. That that's very generous uh, for Joe Biden. Do, does that mean that Donald Trump uh, gets a different grade? He went out there to speak to union members as well. I would have to give him a, a failing grade because if you're going to go in support of union members, you might want to try going to a union facility. So he went to talk to non-union okay. people in a non-union factory and trying to criticize the union that was on strike. So I think they're. In terms of their efforts wow. towards helping the workers, I, I, I would have to give Biden the edge on that, going to the people actually involved in the same cities they're involved. All right. We got maybe this will be a thing on Sound On. We, we didn't we never did the grading thing before. Thank you for playing along. <laughs> Arthur Wheaton, director of labor studies, Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Uh, don't assume, Kaylee, he says that these yeah. deals will be ratified. Yeah, I think we should probably be calling them tentative deals. Yeah, fair enough. And you did. There's I think we both used that here. word. I yeah. think I'm going to give us both credit for that. But a, boy, that would be a us. major blow for Sean Fain. <laughs> yes, well done. That's an A, I think. An edit, that's an E for editorial. Never mind. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY.
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. As the Biden administration brings artificial intelligence back into the conversation today, this is not the first time, Kaylee Lines, it will not be the last as Capitol Hill seeks some sort of legislative solution that won't be coming anytime soon. We can't even fund the government. The administration should get some credit for keeping the the drumbeat on this. The president today signing another executive order is going to be talking about this uh, momentarily here to, I hate to say this again, to put guardrails around this emerging technology. How did I do with that? Go in the news release? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Because that doesn't mean anything to us and we don't always know what we're talking about when it comes to AI right. to begin with. And a lot of these executive orders are multi-pronged, and mm-hmm. he's directing different departments and agencies to do different things, but broadly sweeping, it's just, let's try to do something about AI. Yes, right. And then it gets a little bit more specific, but to be honest, Joe, a lot of this still feels quite amorphous. Um, sure, and it begins with the matter of privacy here and, of mm-hmm. course, getting corporate partners to sign on. You were up on Capitol Hill uh, when Elon Musk and everyone else oh, came up Zuckerberg. there to brief lawmakers. Yeah, that, that was, was the all-senators briefing. Nothing followed that, though, right? That was a conversation and a photo op. And Yeah, Chuck Schumer had said this is going to be the first of many, right. and really it was about education. It mm-hmm. wasn't about actually trying to set policy. It was just trying to get members of Congress to wrap their head around this technology and, and hear from people so that they can proceed on a path forward. And yeah, I haven't heard much about what that what that path forward, at least legislatively, is, Joe. <laughs> well, Bloomberg government was the first to get their hands on on the the order mm-hmm. on the EO. Uh, here we go again: new standards on security and privacy protections for AI with far-reaching impacts on companies, developers such as Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet. Of course, these are the the main AI concerns out there. Uh, Google's parent will be directed to put these models through safety tests and submit results to the government before their public release. So if you're mm-hmm. teaching one of these models something, apparently you have to tell the government first. I don't know how that's going to work or exactly what they agreed to, but I don't think any of this is binding either. Well, that's a very good point of whether these are just, you know, agreements in principle. Yeah, exactly. And then we'll see about actual enforcement. Something else is asking the Commerce Department to help develop measures to counter public confusion about authentic content. This is when we start mm-hmm. thinking about deep fakes yes, and right. misinformation. So, yeah, will this afternoon at the White House change anything? I don't know. But we wanted to talk to Caitlin Legacki about it, Four Corners Public Affairs partner, and spent time as an advisor uh, to the Commerce Secretary in this administration. Caitlin, it's great to see you. I know this is something that you were you were actually briefing the Commerce Secretary on. And the Biden administration is trying to keep up with the flow here. And it feels like Washington is already behind. How important is this executive order today? Yeah, you know, uh, Kaylee mentioned earlier that a lot of this still feels a little bit soft. I was actually surprised at how far this executive order went. Um, We're obviously still in the early ages, but this was early stages, but this was much more robust than I was expecting. I think they cover a breadth of topics, whether it's healthcare, education, national and economic security that um, a lot of folks are concerned about. And so, Mm -hmm. like you said, this is a very important first step. Um, 
But I think the, the most important thing is that at least the Biden administration and to an extent Capitol Hill have learned the lessons of, you know, the social media debate on Capitol Hill. Um, and they want to place some sort of guardrails on this uh, before the horse gets too far out of the barn. Uh, because, you know, once these technologies take hold, it's so hard to reel them back in. And so I think this this mm-hmm. executive order is a really important first step to kind of, one, tell companies what the administration is concerned about, what they're looking at. But it also sent a message um, with its utilization of the Defense Production Act that they want companies and businesses at the table shaping solutions. But this administration is not afraid to go even further without them. Okay, well, you say it kind of gives companies a better idea of what their concerns are and gives companies some directives as to what they should be practicing. But how hard is it to actually make what has been outlined in this executive order a reality for it to have real real effect, be enforced? That's a great question. I mean, the, the interagency coordination that this document is going to require is a job in and of itself. Um, I saw at least hmm. five different Uh, cabinet agencies named, you're obviously going to have additional equities within the White House, the Department of Defense. Um, So I think that is, frankly, one of the biggest challenges. The good news is that um, as the Biden administration has been approaching this question of AI, they've had all of those folks at the table from the beginning. Um, But you're totally right that there are questions about enforcement. There are questions about How is this going to match up with legislation should it ever get through the Congress? Um, But I think one of the most important things that is in this document that is going a little bit under the radar is how the government is going to use its procurement uh, capacities to help shape some of this technology. Um, The government is going to be spending billions and billions of dollars on AI technology, both for national security, but also for how we do business within the government. And forcing companies to comply with this set of guidelines in order to get federal contracts is going to be an important tool um, to enforce uh, compliance with these goals. That's pretty big leverage. Is that why then, Caitlin, all 15 companies uh, signing onto these commitments are actually with the president today to try to make a, a, a united front here? These are the same companies who are asking in some cases to be regulated. A little, yeah, that I think everyone re- recognizes the importance of having a shared set of goals and values and, and guidelines for how we implement this technology. But you're right. When you look at the companies that are with the president, it's a lot of the biggest players in the space. They have a lot at stake in terms of getting this right and protecting their uh, corporate brand reputations. But I also do think that uh, companies don't necessarily want to be on the hook for managing this on a case-by-case basis the way that many social media companies are when it comes to disinformation on their platforms. They recognize the value in having everyone playing from the same set of rules. Finally, Caitlin, we only have about a minute left, but we were just having a whole conversation on labor and the power of unions and artificial intelligence's role in that was was raised uh, in that discussion. How much is this executive order going to have an impact on on job security for American people? I don't know that it does yet. I think where you'll see a lot of it is in terms of uh, figuring out where within, you know, the government you can automate tasks using that as a pilot. But Mm. I this this 
administration is very focused on making sure that we're balancing those equities and that we're not pushing people out of jobs or if there are jobs that are being phased out because of technological advancements how do we account for that i don't see this going Mm -hmm. away as a major labor issue anytime soon i also see it um, emerging as a huge issue in education and healthcare. um and we've been very focused I think on the consumer applications for this All and right, the defense Caitlin, applications. I wish we had more time with you. Caitlin Legacki from Four Corners. This is Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.